Hey, guys, welcome to Outpost. Glad you guys are here. We are a community of Christ followers on CSU's campus, and we're grateful that on Wednesday nights, amongst all the other things you could be doing, you are here with us. We're continuing a series in the story of Peter and his relationship with Jesus. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. If you don't, you can download an app or it'll be on the screen here. And we are looking at this guy, Peter, who, who was one of the closest disciples of Jesus, certainly one of the, like, kind of the most colorful personalities and characters that followed Jesus. And so we learn a lot about what does it mean to follow Jesus, to be in friendship and relationship, to be uh, someone who's being transformed by Christ's life through Peter's life. And so we're kind of looking at this story of the journey Peter has with Jesus. Last week, basically figuring out like, Jesus, you are freaking me out. Says Jesus, go away. But by the end of his life with Jesus, suddenly came to this place of like absolute, God, I don't care what it takes. I want to be near you. But we're continuing this story in Matthew 16 tonight. And it's been great just kind of getting to know some of you guys. How many of you guys were out there playing, uh, playing games, water, uh, slip and slide, kickball on Saturday. And then our, our Indian friends have been teaching us, what's that game called? Yeah, Kabaddi. And <laughs> that's been fun. I think that's been like the new highlight game for the year for the guys. But, um, but we just love looking at the idea of how Christ draws us to each other as he calls us to follow after him. Matthew 16, 13 says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you, by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I will tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he had ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. You know, what's, what's the most common first question that someone asks you when they first walk up to you you know, maybe here tonight, you see somebody new, you're like, what's the first thing you ask? What's your name? What's your name, right? Which is just kind of like, just, just you know, in Peter's day, names had a lot of significance and meaning. They don't necessarily have so much to us today, but, but it did, it was just kind of like, for that time, a defining attribute of like how you saw yourself. To us, it's still kind of the introduction to the conversation about who are you? And how do you define yourself? I think of myself, you know, my name is Nate Banke. I'm the Chi Alpha Director here at CSU. And, and I love just small town ranching people because I grew up that way. And my hometown was really only known for kind of two things. It was known for watermelons, which my wife was like at Costco this week or something. And, and sure enough, got a watermelon with a big old Hermiston, Oregon sticker on the front. That's where I'm from. Uh, it was known for watermelons and nerve gas. Yeah, the third largest concentration of nerve gas in the U.S. And so I always make the joke that you can kind of tell where somebody's from based on if you did 
you know, if you did you know, earthquake drills, you might be from California. If you did tornado drills, you might be from Kansas. But if you did nerve gas leakage drills, you might be from Hermiston, Oregon. And, and yet, when we first say hi to somebody, we meet somebody, we, we are just starting the conversation about how do you see yourself? Who are you? How do you define who that is? But we don't immediately jump into everything and all of it, which is why, like, when you go up to a buddy even after a while and say, hey, how are you doing? If they immediately turned around and said, well, my grandmother has cancer and my parents are getting a divorce and my major is changing and I'm not sure, but I'm really hoping that this is really going to be a great path for my future and my, my career path with this major. And, and it, you know, somebody would just look at you like a deer in the headlights. Like, I really wasn't asking all of that. I'm just saying Hi. But, but we do, with time, in community, we are starting to get into each other's lives. And we do want to go into that deeper place of being known and loved by the people around us. And here's these disciples. And they've been following after Jesus. They've been following this guy for a while. And they're kind of getting to know him. But Jesus is still pretty reserved about everything regarding who he is. And so there's a lot of mystery still. And there's all this kind of buzz in Israel. There's all, this conver- all these conversations about this rabbi and what is he doing. And there's stories about miracles and all kinds of like wild stuff happening. And there's all this conversation. There's all this talk. And in this passage that we look at tonight, suddenly Jesus starts to reveal a little bit more about what's actually going on. Because the world is, you know, the world's always asking that question. You guys in college, one of the most common questions that kind of unify us is like, what are we going to do about God? Who is God? What do I think about spirituality? What do I think about faith? What do I think about Jesus specifically? And our world, we like to try to define Jesus ourselves. We like to try to make him into like our image and kind of define him ourselves. But do we let him define himself? Do we let him reveal what he wanted to reveal about who he was and what he was doing on the earth. And tonight we're looking at this passage that is one of the most revealing to the idea of how Jesus saw himself. And so I want to just kind of look at that question. As you guys are in college wrestling with, like, who is Jesus and what does that mean for my life? As we look at this story through Peter's eyes, we see a parallel as Jesus begins to unfold for Peter who he is and what that means for him. So kind of going line by line here just a little bit. And this passage is, I mean, it's, it's just chock full. I could do a whole little s- series on this passage alone. And so I, my tension tonight is trying to do a decent job with the time I've got with everything we've got. But if you will give me a little grace and bear with me, I think it's going to be worthwhile in the journey. So verse 13 says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, first thing you got to understand, we read Caesarea Philippi and we think, okay, somewhere in Israel or something. And, and we don't understand, we really have to understand just a few things about this context. Because everything that Jesus is about to say is going to hinge on the context of where they are. Now, Caesarea Philippi is not in Israel. It's not uh, in Jerusalem. It was a city that was a Greek city. It was started by Alexander the Great a few hundred years before this. And this is a pagan city. And Jesus had to have hiked about 18 miles from where he commonly did ministry and taken his disciples all the way up for 18 miles the full day or two to get up to this place, seemingly just to do this object lesson. But Jesus is like the best at like, 
small group meetings. He's like, I am going to create a memory. That, man, this small group, they are never going to forget, and they wouldn't. But Caesarea Philippi was known because it was, the, it was the center for pan worship in the Greek pantheon. Pan being this like half goat, half human god. And there was two things of note in Caesarea. One was that there was this, there was this cave that they believed was where Pan would go to the underworld during kind of the winter months, kind of hide out. And then in the springtime, if, if the people could really kind of conjure him up, he would re-enter with, with his nymphs and these other kind of entourage, and he would enter from the underworld through this cave, and they would, they would procreate, and through that, they would, they would kind of fertilize the earth. And they believed that this was kind of that place where heaven and earth met. This was the place where the spiritual and the physical touched, where, where the gods would come and go from, from Hades. And they would literally call that cave the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. It was the place where they believed the two worlds met together. And they would come together, these people, these Greek people in this city would come together and, and they would have these rituals and these celebrations and these ceremonies to try to like kind of conjure Pan up. And so they would, and not to get too graphic, the ancient world is just weird, but you know, they would basically have kind of this orgy that, that the priests would try to really just kind of stir the people up into this way. And, and the priests would start having sex with the priestesses, and then they would all have sex with the congregants, and then the congregants would have sex with goats. And it was just this really weird thing. It's actually where we get the modern word pandemonium from, this, like, crazed, hazy, like, insanity that's just kind of group think. And, and it was just weird. It was just blah. But, but here's Jesus and he's talking to the disciples about some really important things, and he's using this object lesson of the gates of Hades. The other thing that you need to know is that in Caesarea, there was this, there was this rock called the Rock of the Gods. And this was, this was this huge rock face with kind of statues of their different gods around it, and on the top was, was Pan. And, and Pan had, was just kind of the statue at the top of, of this rock face. And these, these poor Jewish boys, they would never forget this because this is like, hey, this was be like, hey, we can never tell anyone that we did this, right? Like, I mean, if, man, if my dad found out that I came up to Philippi, man, I'd be in so much trouble, right? Like, these guys are probably sweating a little bit that they're hiking all, where are we going, Jesus? Like, wait, no, we're not going, really? And, and yet, what's about to happen is an object lesson that they would never forget. Verse 14, they replied, some say John the Baptist, remember Jesus asking, who do people say the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, Jesus at this moment is not asking. He is kind of asking them, who do you think I am? But that's not how they would have interpreted it. What they heard Jesus ask is, who do you think the Son of Man is? Which was this common theological debate at the time of Jesus. It comes from this passage in this old prophet who used to live in Babylon during the time of the Babylonian conquest of the Jewish nation. And there was this guy, Daniel, and he had these visions of God and, 
and the supernatural and the future and all these kind of things. But in one of the most fundamental visions of his life, he would talk about in verse 13 of chapter 7, it said, In my vision, Daniel talking, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. It would go on to say in the vision that this son of man received worship. And, and there was this really strange, like, we don't really know what to do with this because to the Jewish people, Moses was seen as like one of the greatest leaders, one of the most connected to God people, and yet he could not enter the presence of God. God said, it will kill you. And yet here is this guy who is entering into this communion with, with Yahweh in a way that a, a human shouldn't. And yet even Daniel says he's like a son of man. Like there's this like ambiguity or confusion or kind of mis, mystical, like I, I'm trying to put my finger on it, but I can't quite get it right. And then he's receiving worship, which is like, well, only Yahweh can get that. So the Jewish people, they, they didn't know what to do with it. So they had, it was just a common theological debate. Think like, what do we do? Like, what are our theories of Genesis 1? Or what's, you know, Calvinism, Arminianism, or different, you know, modern concepts of like debate today. But at that time, this was one of them. And so they just kind of share their go-to answers. Like, well, it might be Elijah. I mean, if anybody was greater than Moses, maybe Elijah got was greater than Moses. Maybe him or one of the other prophets or Jeremiah was pretty great, right? They just kind of towed out like common answers. They're, they don't know. But then Jesus says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Now, I don't know if you quite catch this, but Jesus flipped the question. He, he changed the question into a different direction than what he originally asked. He just asked this common theological question and then he shifts it to like, but what do you say about me? It'd be sort of like if I said, hey, what are you looking for in a major? You'd say, well, I, I'm looking for something kind of analytical, and I like puzzles and trying to uncover things. And, and yeah, right. And then I asked, well, what do you think accounting is? Like, oh, I never, th is that what that is? Right? Jesus is like, hey, who's the son of man? Oh, I don't know, this, that. Who do you think I am? Uh, and all of a sudden, Peter has this revelation, and he responds, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Some of your translations would say Christ, which Messiah and Christ, it just depends on, on what the root word was. They're, they're interchangeable, generally, in the Bible. Basically, Messiah, Christ, both contrary to popular belief, Jesus' last name was not Christ. It was that Christ was this title of the Messiah, this, and both mean the anointed one. And so there's this idea of, of the anointed one, probably still referring back to that Daniel 7 character, the anointed one of God. But then Peter does something absolutely revolutionary. And he takes it a step further than anyone ever would have ever thought. And he says, you are the Christ the Son of God. Historians have made comments that the Jewish people were probably the least likely people in all the world, certainly at that time, if not in all of human history, to have ever come up with an idea like this. And yet here is Peter, and he just suddenly makes this connection. And he says, not just you are a son of man, 
you're the very son of God. And all of a sudden, the light dawns on him, and Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You know, how do you know who Jesus is? It's a common question. It's a common journey people have. It's like, how do I know who he is? And I would say certainly some, some of the backstory of this is you see that the disciples had kind of postured their lives to receive this revelation, right? Like, they know scripture. Like, do you know the things that God has already revealed about himself? Do you know what he is, what he is taught in his word? And, and do you have discussion? Do you, do you debate and wrestle and question and think and process those ideas with each other, with community? The disciples knew the discussion. They knew the concepts that they were wrestling through. And a, and a sign of a really healthy Chi Alpha group is when we say, like, man, there is, we love God with our minds that we're wrestling and thinking and processing and journeying together in, in the discussion of who is God. Maybe most importantly, though, is that they're hanging out with Jesus just day in and day out. And they're drawing near and they're connecting close to him. But ultimately, through all of that, there's lots of people that spent time with Jesus. There were lots of people that were theologians and Bible scholars and different, you know, scribes and scholars. There was lots of people at the time with Jesus. Only Peter here in this moment suddenly, wait a second. Because through all of that, yeah, it might have helped them. But at the end of the day, there is this posture of Jesus saying, hey, my father showed that to you. And and in your life, you will find that in the journey of discovering who Jesus is, are you in that place of, yeah, posturing your life, but, but ultimately, are you saying, God, I need, I need you to help me? I was reading this book this last week that was just kind of talking about, like, the modern worship service. And one of the challenges that we've had is we've done so much to push into, like, the idea of what we do to God. We worship, we sing, we study, we read, we think. And yet we forget that a lot of the idea of scripture is what God is doing to us. That as we come into that place, what is God doing in our lives, in our situation? Do we recognize that in this place, God is speaking to you right now? Do you have ears to hear? So, Jesus then shifts and he says, and I tell you that you are Peter. Now, Peter is the name that we commonly use for him, but that was not his original name. His original name was Simon. In this moment, Jesus changes his Peter name. He changes his, in many ways, his identity. Foundationally shifts who he is. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, that's, there's, there's a whole bunch here. And, and uh, you know, depending on different, like, you know, church traditions that you may or may not come from, if you have any at all. Like, there's lots of kind of theological, uh, organizational leadership kind of concepts that flesh out from this passage. I'm happy to talk more in depth about that. I do think there's a couple of things that are, I just want to kind of highlight to make note of as I understand this passage. One is that, let's talk about rocks. That Peter, let's talk about rocks. And the geologists in the room are like, amen, finally, yes. Um, but the words that Jesus uses for Peter is petros, which is a rock. It is a stone. It is a, 
it is just where that, that's what it is. But then when Jesus says, but on this rock, I will build my church, he does not use the word Petros. He uses the word Petros when, when renaming Peter, but then he uses this word Petra, which sounds similar, but is a functionally different word in the Greek. They're two separate words. And he says, but on this Petra, I will build my church. And you've got to remember the context. Jesus is here right in the same context as the rock of the gods, right? This Petra of the gods. And a Petra is a far more foundational. It's something like you think like you can't move it, right? A Petra, you could, you know, you go camping this weekend, you could probably grab it, maybe like hoist it down the mountain. Like, you know, it's, it's something you could use as building material, right? It's, it's something that's, it's a rock, it's a stone, but, but Petra is like, is like an unmovable force. It's an unmovable stone. You know, Petros is something you build a house with. A Petra is what you built the house upon. And, and there's a difference because Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, you're going to be part of this. You're going to help me in this. There's a journey in this. You're going to be built upon my life, but I'm the stone. Just like this rock of the gods, I am the god. I am the rock. Not even the gods just are built upon my creative force in the world. They don't even hold up to the fact that I am the stone. I am the Petro. The other thing, well, I think about Ephesians 2. Or on my Petra. Ephesians 2, verse 19 says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. See, here's Jesus and he's in front of this pagan altar and these, and these pagan symbols of worship. And, and here is Paul, some years later, not that long into the future, writing to this Ephesian church, this, this Greco-Roman city. And he says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Just like Jesus was saying, hey, I'm going to build my church, but it's going to be bigger than one people in one you know, nation, state, or one group. It's going to be transcendent of all of that. It's a whole humanity. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus saying, hey, yeah, Peter, you are a rock. You're a stone. You're part of this. You're going to be an apostle. You're going to be somebody that's going to influence and lead and direct and guide in the church and the development of my people, the community of God, the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so Paul uses the word of cornerstone, the idea of Jesus being the foundational stone within everything. In this passage, Jesus is talking, I am the rock that everything else is going to be built upon. Are you going to build your life on me or am I just something that you tag on in your life? In whom you also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So Paul is just kind of using a parallel of, of this kind of idea that when Jesus is talking, hey, I'm going to build my church, he's saying, I'm going to build it upon me. Not, up, not upon you. Not upon, you know, the best of us or the greatest of us or the most spiritual of us. He's like, I'm going to build it upon me, on my life, on who I am. And he says, I will build my church, which is this ancient Greek word, uh, ecclesia, <laughs> ecclesia, 
which basically means, really simply, ecclesia just means gathering. And Jesus is saying, hey, in contrast, in contrast to the world's idea of spirituality, in contrast to the world's idea of, of hedonism and fulfillment and humanism, in, the, in contrast to the world's idea of community and connection to the supernatural, in contrast to all of this pan-worship, I am going to build my ecclesia, my gathering, my community around me, built upon me and worship to me. And so here is Jesus articulating this contrast. And he says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Meaning what? He's in front of literally the gates of Hades. Literally the Greek idea of, of the place of the underworld coming to our reality. And he says, and the gates of Hades, it's not going to be strong enough to overcome it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and take over the spirituality of the world. I'm going to be that place where heaven and earth actually meets. I'm, through my people, this is going to become the place where real worship is going to be felt upon the foundation of reality itself, the creator force, Christ. And you know, oftentimes one of the things that in our world, one of the most common objections people have is like, well, kind of the default assumption is like, well, every road leads to Rome, as they say. All water eventually flows into the ocean. The idea that every belief, every religion will ultimately lead to Christ or lead to God or lead to the creator. And I empathize with the heart of it. I, I get the desire for that to be true. But what's interesting is even Jesus comes in here and he's not passive about this. He's full on saying, hey, I am directly assaulting the spirituality of the world around me. That oftentimes people see this as sort of more enlightened, like, oh, yeah, we're just, we're just kind of all following God in some way. And they see it as more enlightened, but it often is often from a place of largely ignorance, not thinking through it as deeply. Because I, I just have to ask oftentimes, most of the time, all I have to do is ask questions like, well, are you talking about like the Baal gods that like demanded child sacrifices? You think that's the way to God? They're just also on the same path of love and grace truth or the pantheon that Jesus is here directly standing in front of and saying this spirituality I will build my church upon the people who have experienced what the world has to offer and is are still wanting something more they've experienced all the hedonism all the secularism all the, the sexuality and the spirituality that they could hope to have in this world and they're they're going to come to this place of realizing there's something more there's something lacking because i was the stone that was always meant to be your life's foundation and so christ comes into this place giving direct assault to the idea of spirituality now i don't i empathize with the journey and the desire for this to be true but i think it's interesting i i often tell people like i get this and i I want to walk with that. But, but if you're going to go there, I can at least respect the idea if you're consistent. Meaning, are you consistent in the way that you think about this? Because if you say, well, all roads lead to Rome, then you need to also say that to your professor tomorrow when you take a pop quiz and he says, you got the answers wrong. No, professor, I got the answer right. I just got it a different way. It'll still lead to the same conclusion. How many of you in fluids class in engineering will have a professor say, yeah, that's probably true. All answers will eventually be true. 
all beliefs, ideas will be true. If you believe, like, you know, I, I don't mean to pick on anybody in particular, but, like, you know, if you think, like, is the Flatlander equally true to the idea of a global globe world? Can they both be equally true? But in the, in the reality of reality, we're like, well, no, obviously there's right, wrong, true. You know, we might be revealing more truth in deeper ways, but, but we're just going at that foundation that there is a truth that we're uncovering and discovering and growing in. But when we come to spirituality, we just try to throw that out the window, like, oh, it's all true. So I, I respect the journey if you're consistent. But if you have to be, you have to be consistent with everything in your life, that everything is just relative. Or is there something true? As one preacher used to say, he's like, even us in India still look both ways before we cross the street. That there is a reality no matter what you want reality to be. And here comes Jesus and he says, I have a spirituality that's more true, more real, more foundational than anything the world has to offer. And my ecclesia, my church is going to be built upon the journey of showing that I have something greater than the world has to offer. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And so, you know, we, we want Jesus to make himself clear. We want God to write his name in the sky. We want kind of this, like, idea of, of God to, you know, we think belief is the goal, so we want him to just make himself as articulate and as clear to us. And yet, actually, in the story of Jesus, if you keep reading through the stories, Jesus is regularly hiding who he is. This, is. this has been a while for the disciples before he gets to this moment of, like, revealing this idea of him being the son of God. Or even the son of man from Daniel 7. Like, it's, it's been a while. And, and actually, a couple chapters before this in Matthew, you can read the disciples come up to him say, hey, why do you keep talking in parables? Like, we don't understand what's going on. Like to us today, we're like, oh, it's such a beautiful picture of what, you know, Jesus actually was just confusing everybody. It's like, what are you talking about? Jesus said, he kind of quotes this prophecy in Isaiah, says, in paraphrasing, basically, I wish that they had ears to hear and eyes to see, but because they don't, I'm going to keep them ignorant. And commonly, he would tell people to not share who he was, the Messiah, partially because he didn't want them to, like, crucify him. The, the reason why they would cr- kill Jesus was because he claimed uh, to be the Son of Man in, in Daniel 7. If you actually read in the Gospels, that's actually the, the final straw before the religious leaders. They're like, okay, you're done. And, and yet, we, we kind of look at this and there's something more going on that Jesus is, as the religious leaders before his crucifixion said, hey, give us a sign, show us, like we, we'll believe, give us a sign. And he said, basically he said, hey, I'll give you the sign of Jonah, you're going to kill me, I'll come back three days later, but you're still not going to believe. But basically he, in the context, he was just like, no, no, we're not, we're not going there, I'm not going to do that. But to doubting Thomas, if you know that story. That to Thomas, Jesus says, yeah, hey, touch my hands. Touch the side where they pierced me. Give me some food so I can show you that I'm corporeal, that I'm physical, that I'm real. Not just some ghost or spirit or hallucination, that I'm real, tangible. Because at the end of the day, this whole passage has, there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of different ideas about 
what is the structure of church and what is the church and what is what does it mean to spirituality in in the world and who is Jesus and all of these things and i would say that behind all of it this passage is about what do you worship what will you worship in your life what will you build your life on or said maybe another way what will you bow to in your life it can often be said that worship is is best defined just as one the idea that everyone worships something as a premise understanding that everyone is worshiping something but what are you going to worship and that thing that you bow to that thing that you surrender to that thing that you sacrifice for and give to in your life is that thing that your life is about and it's the thing that you worship and so what in your life are you worshiping and Jesus in this story, I think, is calling Peter and the followers of Jesus after him to say, hey, would you follow me? Would you worship me? In the Bible, there's sort of the idea of first mention, that we understand a word through the lens of when it was first used. And, and there's a couple of different times in Genesis, Genesis 18, Genesis 22, but the ancient words there is whenever Abraham would see uh, God or have trying to obey God or anything like that, he would bow before God, prostrate himself. And that word is the word that we use for worship. That what do you bow to in your life? What do you give your life to? You become like what you worship. And so Jesus is waging war here saying there is too much worship for the wrong things in this life. And I'm building my church upon myself on a better foundation. Your behaviors are built on what you worship. Far from what you sing about in worship songs, it's better defined as what is the thing that you crave? Or maybe better said, what is the thing that you most love? It's about what you long for in your life. And so Jesus is saying, hey, worship Pan and you'll become like him. I'm more powerful than what the world worships, and I'm calling you to replace them in the world, but what do you live for? What do you worship? Jesus wasn't just trying to inform people about what to believe about him, but rather what to live for. Rather than answer what you believe, what do the actions of your life say about what you worship? I think of Timothy Keller in The Reason for God he says, our need for worth is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify. We will look to it with all the passion and intensity of worship and devotion, even if we think ourselves as highly irreligious. And his point here is simply saying, like, hey, we all worship something. We are craving for something to give our lives to. And you're in college right now. You are deciding, what am I going to give my life to? What am I going to surrender my passion to? What am I going to envision for my life? And what am I going to devote my life to? That's what, that's what we even call it in career. I devoted my life to what? And so, so what are you going to devote your life to? Because Jesus is here saying, hey, would you give your life to me? So a few thoughts here as we wrap up tonight. But one, are you someone who is posturing your life to hear God? The disciples, they knew scripture. They had community that discussed and wrestled with the question of faith. 
They, they spent time with Jesus, but they were posturing through all of that. They were putting themselves into a place of saying, God, who are you? Would you speak to me? And Jesus here, I think, if we want to contrast what was going on with the religious leaders where Jesus is like, I'm not giving you a sign. But to people like Thomas or people that really needed him, he's like, yeah, I'm there for you. Is I would argue that throughout the narrative of Jesus's life and death was this difference of approach depending on whether or not someone was at a place of saying, hey, if you are who you say you are, I will bow. I will build my life on you. The religious leaders were just people who said, I don't really care. I'm looking for you to bow to me, to my agenda, to my ideas of life. And so often in our world today, that is how we treat Jesus. We're looking to make him bow to us instead of recognizing, hey, if you are the creator God of the world, I will bow to you. And for those who would come with that posture of humility, Jesus would say, hey, I'll be there. I'm going to be there. But have you postured your life? Have you spent time? Do you even know what he's already revealed about himself in scripture? Are you spending time in community with a small group or with the small group leader or with people that are trying to pour into you and walk with you through the questions of faith? Are you wrestling with it? Are you spending time with Jesus? For you Christians, in prayer, are you spending time? You can believe in God, but are you posturing your life to be shaped by him? Are you, are you putting yourself into that place in worship to say, God, I'm not just doing things to you, but I am recognizing that you are speaking. You are doing something in me. You are shaping me through this act. Second, are you someone who is letting God define who he is and who you are as a result? Too much in our world, we create in our narrative of our society in this moment. And honestly, guys, this is very strange to the history of the world, but but we mostly define ourselves by however we want to define ourselves. We create our own sense of self. And so we come to God and we're offended by him because he claims to have divine rights, that he claims to have creative intent, that he's like, hey, I made you, and so I made you with purpose and meaning and value and significance, but, but, I, but it's in me, it's through me, it's through being built upon me that you have to find that. Would you discover, would you journey with me? Are you letting God define you? Or what are you letting define you in your life? What shapes your passions? What shapes your heart? What shapes your cravings? For Peter, Jesus would say, I'm changing your destiny. No longer are you Simon, son of this guy, Jonah. But now you're a son of God. You're a child of the king. I am shaping your destiny. Third, are you worshiping him and all that he has revealed about himself in your life? I think about A.W. Tozer's famous quote. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people have ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. And so, do you give, do you just believe that Jesus died for your sins? Do you just believe that he was the son of God and the son of man? Do you just believe these things or are you shaped by them? Do you worship him for the things that he's revealed in your life? And this is a, this is a, 
charge for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Like, are we worshiping him? I was, I was just walking at night here a few days ago, and I was just kind of thinking as I was trying to focus on praying to God, and I started connecting to the idea of how he saved me from so much, and I suddenly realized, like, man, I'm like, I was like a small town, shy. I mean, everybody says they were shy. I, was, I really was, like, awkwardly small town, shy kind of kid, and I just, and here I am, you know, preaching to you guys and talking to students randomly on the campus, on the plaza, and just talking about faith all the time. Like, I'm like, who is this person that God has shaped in me? Because at one of the most foundational moments of my life, I was depressed to the point of being suicidal, and yet Christ came in and pulled me out of that. And I remember, I was like, man, that's something I know but it's been a while since I've even remembered or cared. It's been a while since I've let that affect my heart, not just my mind. It's been a while since I've worshipped you for that and thanked you for that and bowed before your supreme power that I would not be where I am today without you. And I'm so grateful for the life and the journey and the transformation that my life has taken because of you. But God, I bow to you right now. Lastly, are you someone who is speaking identity over those who are around you? How we create, a lot of times in our, in our community, we'll, we'll talk about the idea of like, kind of like honor. Like, are we speaking honor? But, but honor, not just like, hey, I'm going to like celebrate, like, hey, you're so cool. But like, am I speaking the same thing that Christ was speaking over Peter? Am I speaking the words of life that this is who God made you to be? This is what it looks like. This is what I see in you. As, as whether or not you've even begun to build your life on the rock. But I see, man, such a man of prayer and passion and destiny. I see such a, a warrior for his kingdom that loves people and is willing to fight for them. I see a woman who's willing to sacrifice and serve and minister in the moments of difficulty and challenge of someone's life and relate in a way that I could never. Like, I, I see this in you. Do we speak the things of the kingdom over people's life? Because to be community is to be people that are on the journey with Christ. And as he's been shaping us, are we helping in that journey of shaping each other to become people in and more and more in love and like the image of Christ? That Jesus said to Peter, here, I'm transforming your identity. And I'm going to change the whole way of seeing yourself. But it's it's. In the words, we often say, well, I shape myself. It's like, well, no, you mostly choose what you accept to receive from people. But, but everything from psychology, sociology, modern you know, studies of this, that, the other would largely tell you, like, we are so influenced by our world. We are largely, we see ourselves by, through other people's eyes and what they've spoken over us. And we can, at some level, choose to kind of, like, lean into that or lean away from that. But at the end of the day, it's the community around you that has often shaped the foundation of how you see yourself. And so the question is, are we shaping each other? Are we helping each other claim that identity as a child of God, a son or daughter of the king, to take on the value that he was claiming, to fight against the things that the world is seeking to give you validation in, but to seek instead him and him crucified? And so are we worshiping Christ by loving those around us? Worship team, you guys can come back up. But you guys are in college. 
And while I and while you're here, you're going to be working through questions of yes, your major and your classes schedules and your you know who's going to be your roommates next semester and but at a deeper maybe somewhat existential level what are you going to worship what are you going to bow to in your life not just what is your career but what is your career going to be about not just who might i marry someday but why and what is my life and what is our life going to be about And Jesus comes on the scene and looks at the idea of the world's perception of, of spirituality, of connecting to the divine, of relationship with each other. And he says, I've got a better way than that. Would you build your life upon me? Would you be a community, just like we're kind of doing tonight? Jesus says, my ecclesia, my church, built upon, in contrast to this pan worship that is just this weird, awkward thing when you come into this place of being built upon me, a God who loves you. You know, we can sometimes say, man, it's interesting, you know, it's interesting, but it seems pretty self-serving. Jesus is like, hey, you need to worship me. You need to come to me. You need to build your life upon me. We kind of feel like it's maybe one-sided until we suddenly realize that the story of Jesus, the story of the Son of Man, the Son of God becoming the Son of Man, is a story of God saying, hey, would you build your life on me because in some way I'm building my life upon humanity. I'm gonna enter in and join into your story. And a lot of things about my reality are suddenly gonna be shaped by you. And my destiny, my life, my very death is gonna be shaped and directed and guided by your hands. I'm just asking, would you do that in return? Because I'm letting you shape my life so that I can shape yours. And I'm going to let you do all the things that you are offended by me and hurt by me and ticked off about me. And I'm going to receive all of that. And I'm going to take that. And I'm going to let that in. And I'm going to take on that, what we call sin, in your life. And I'm going to absorb that into mine. So that my love and my truth and my goodness can become your reality that your life would be built on my rock. Christ, let his death be built upon ours. And sometime later, Jesus, it says actually right after that in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life, that he would be literally lifted up on a different rock. On a different rock, he would stand on a cross and he would let us crucify him. That Jesus isn't saying, hey, this is a one-way street. Hey, worship me because, you know, build your life upon me. He's saying, hey, I'm going to build my life on you. I'm going to let you do what you want to me. But would you let me do what I dream about for you? Because I have a plan and a future and a destiny. It's a good one. It's a good one. Would you follow me? Let's worship. <laughs>